the volume. Hey guys, it's the sessions presented by FanDuel. It might be cold, but the sports calendar is heating up, baby, and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe, secure, and so, so easy to use. FanDuel always has exclusive offers, boosts, and more. And when you win, you're gonna get paid real fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play, like with the spread, money line, over, under, team totals, player props, and so much more. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And you can combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay to try out the same game parlay plus. Get in on that. And... FanDuel is now live in Maryland, y'all. So use the promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E, and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 for Tennessee. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Rocky Romero here on the sessions. Are you ready for a spicy interview? Spicy? Nobody told me anything about spice. It's always spicy around here. Are you kidding me? Okay. I'm 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 in, I guess. What's the Sasha Banks tea? <laughs> <laughs> what did I know that was gonna come up like? I did, I thought we might get a little warmed up before we get right to it. No, no, I I'm going to warm you up. I mean, just know that, that question's coming, so prepare your answer however you want. The question's coming your way though. Okay. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> Uh, how are you doing? What's going on? Are you in Mexico? Are you back from Mexico? I am currently home in Los Angeles. I am back from Mexico. I got back um, earlier this week and uh, I had a great trip. I won uh, like a tournament. I got this cool cup. 
I should probably have put it in my background, but I didn't. Well, you blurred your background anyway, so we wouldn't I be able to see it. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's I smart. I really like my background today. I got to like fix up my, my podcasting space a bit. Do you want me to send you a fake plant? That's all the rage. Is that thing fake? Oh God. Yeah. I can't keep a plant alive for the life of me. Can you keep plants alive? My wife is exceptionally good at it. She didn't start out that way, but now she's got a green thumb. See, I think that I can get there. And John poo-poos me every time I bring a plant home. If you were at the grocery store and picking one up, he's like, he starts talking like he's the plant. Like, oh, buddy, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm like, listen, I have to get good at it. I know that I'm going to take some L's along the way. For sure. But I need to figure it out. Unfortunately, yeah. Someone needs to be sacrificed. It's like goldfish, you know? (laughs) You know, they used to get those goldfish at the fair or whatever. Yeah. Or a turtle. Yeah, or a turtle. You're going to go through a few of them, unfortunately, but then you're going to get really good at taking care of pets, you know? Yeah, it's like any kid that like loses a hamster that all of a sudden is in like the the walls of your house. It happens to everybody, a lizard, a snake. Totally happens, yes. Has that ever, have you ever lost a pet? No, no, but uh, I I definitely, I I lost, I had a hamster, his name was Corky, he was my best friend as a kid, and then um, that was like my first Man, we're getting deep. It was like my first loss of a pet, you know? It was so sad. Little guy, like, went in my arms. It was so sad. I learned about death, though, through that. Did kids still get pet hamsters, or was that a thing for kids of the 80s? Because I I had a hamster named Ralph. I love this guy. Me and my best friend, we set up um, a fake wedding, well, a real wedding, for our hamsters. They then fornicate. They make baby hamsters. And I also learned about loss through my hamsters because I didn't know at the ripe age that I was of, gosh, maybe nine, that if you touch baby hamsters when they're first born, the mom eats them and it's fucked. I walked in on the mom eating the baby hamsters. Oh, no. I'm really just nailing this interview right off the top. (laughs) (laughs) Poor people are like so sad and depressed (laughs) listening to this interview. Like, Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, We're just kidding. Oh anyway. my god, <laughs> that was just a dream I had that didn't actually happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. Anyway, shout out anyway, to should hamsters. we talk about something? Yeah, let's talk about something happy. I mean, I have two. I have two beautiful little um, ones: a Shih Tzu and one's a Poodle. They're the the joys of my life. I've heard about these dogs. I've heard about like the love you have for these dogs. How old are they? Uh, Duke is, um, I think he's six now, and then Honey is three. Duke and Honey. Oh, my gosh. Dogs are just the best. What angels on earth they really are. We don't deserve them. Do you ever travel with your dogs? Uh, a little bit. Not really. My, my wife wants to take them everywhere, but it's kind of hard, you know, to yeah. take them. No, it's rough. Yeah. Pun intended. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> And my dogs are bougie as hell, so like... You have L.A. dogs. Do you keep them in those like fancy like L.A. Hollywood dog motels or hotels or whatever? Of course. That's where we pick them up. <laughs> we pick them from this from this bougie rescue place. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Wagmore. But yeah, they were on Ellen. Like they've totally gotten so like Wait, Hollywood your dogs now. were on Ellen? My dogs are not on Ellen, but the place okay. that we got our dogs okay. from were, were on Ellen. And then they just blew up and like all the celebrities get their dogs there. Oh, but we were I, there know, first. I follow that place on Instagram. They've got oh, really, you? yeah, I do. They They've got really rescues. sweet pups. They do. They do. They do. Oh, little shaggy little guys. That's sweet. 
Um, you've mentioned your wife a few times already, and I was going to save it for later, but we're already talking about just personal things before we get into all the wrestling. What's like the love story between you and your wife? How'd you guys meet? So we actually met in acting class. Oh, My, yeah, it's very Hollywood too. But that, I LA. know. Look at you. <laughs> I know, so like, um, <laughs> but yeah. So she was, uh, she was, you know, trying to uh, navigate the acting space, and I wanted to become a better professional wrestler. So I started taking acting classes, and um, that's where we met. And like about a year in, we started to pay attention to each other, and then you know, I asked her out on Facebook. Messenger. Oh, mm. Mm. we went out on a date and then she couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> Where? What was the first date? Where'd you guys go? It's just like a little bar, like a bar, a little restaurant down the street from her, from her place. And, um, we just, we, we hung out the whole night till like three or 4 AM. And then I finally went home and then she says that I never left her apartment, but <laughs> I had, I had to go home at some point. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Left eventually. Eventually, yeah. How long have you guys been together? So we've been together almost 10 years now. Oh, wow. That's almost like same as John and I. Yeah, we're coming up on, we'll be 10 years this coming year. Gosh, a decade with a person. Holy moly. I know all the secrets, all the little crevices, all All of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so you mentioned taking acting classes to become a better professional wrestler. Um, You have really become that guy obviously for New Japan but I think for multiple promotions to be able to kind of groom some younger talent coming in to get them to where they need to be is that something that you often recommend to people is to tap into the acting side of things yeah yeah it, it kind of became like so now when I do like seminars and stuff like I'm, I'm totally like taking stuff that I learned from acting and applying it to a, like professional wrestling because there's a lot of like good little nuggets that uh the style of acting that I studied, it's perfect for me because I'm, I'm so bad at this. So it's like not preparing is your preparation and just kind of going off the feel, you know, I think like John would like this, I feel like, but like you just kind of going in there and just like kind of feeling. So like I try to tell the younger generation that even though I didn't do this when I was young, I just learned it later in life. But like, you know, to leave a little space to just find out what happens and just figure it out. So like, that's like the, the best tool that I think I have because I found all of the, the greatest like points of my character or points of my wrestling have always been in discovery mode and not like sitting back and thinking about it for hours and hours, driving yourself crazy. Like you've been doing this for some time now. So you've been in a bunch of different scenarios to learn to kind of sit back and wait for it. It takes a long time, I think, to have the confidence to learn to sit back. Yeah, to trust yourself that you know you're going to come up with something. Um, I feel like, yeah, if if you're young, it's really hard to know to just like let the moment happen, it seems. For sure, for sure. And and so... When I am teaching, uh, that's what, that's what I try to focus on. And, and I say, you know, like, like just try it, you know, there's no wrong or right answers because in wrestling there really isn't right. So it's like, like, go ahead and just try it and see what happens. See what kind of story you just kind of naturally make, see what your opponent gives you. And every time your opponent gives you something, that's like a gift. So you choose to receive that gift. Those like rules of improv, the yes and it. Exactly. It's helpful to have those acting classes for obviously like not only in the ring, waiting for those moments, learning how to sell all those different things. And of course, for a promo to be able to kind of learn those moments and make certain lines feel important and and whatnot. I feel like we should do more of that. I know at WWE, we did have an acting coach following us around on on the road with us for a while. And some people really hated it. 
They hated that there was an acting coach around. I think it's a really smart idea. Why not? People are very resistant towards that. I could see why if you're kind of like a traditionalist, maybe, you know, or like you're so method in the way that you're already doing things and it's worked for you, how you could be scared to try that, you know, but I think you should give it a go either way, you know, and then, you know, try to figure out if you can just X that off the list or, you know, maybe you want to dive deeper. Lean into it, a deep dive. Um, Okay. So when you first got into professional wrestling, you were what, 15 wrestling under a mask and- is this is this true that you had to you were wrestling with the little people? Are we saying little people? Is that the PC <laughs> yeah, term? Okay. That, yeah. What is the story behind this? You've been talking to Emilio, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, you know, yeah, I was like fifteen. So they didn't really want to put me with the adults. So there was another kid that was about fifteen years old, sixteen years old. So we just wrestled each other, and they had him, him under a gimmick called El Payasito Dinko, which is like the clown dink, but like a, like a very like warped lucha version of it. So they decided to put me under the mask and called El Mono Negro, okay. which means the black monkey. So I was a monkey. I was a little monkey guy. Cute. And then I would fight, I would fight the clown. Wow. That's, that's as carny as it gets right there. It's very carny. I started out very carny, still am. I don't know. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> Renee, help me, please. Get um, me out of this business. I'm ready to go do something. You're else. in it. You're in it. Just ride it out. Ride it out. It's going well for you. It's good. Um, what was it like being under a mask? I sometimes uh, feel for wrestlers that are under a mask because I feel like that's got to be rough sometimes. In the beginning, it's it's very different. Obviously, and, and, you know, you're losing like your depth perception and, uh, you know, you, you kind of learn to work around it. But yeah, I never really liked wrestling in a mask. I got comfortable with it later, uh, later in my career when I started doing, uh, became Black Tiger, then I got very comfortable with it. But it's not something that I, I really enjoy. I mean, what, look at how handsome this face is. Look at this face. You Why know? would we cover it Why up? Oh my God. This? You know? I mean, if you're, you know, you're young and we're trying to sneak you onto the card, I get it. Right. But exactly. yeah, let's let the face, let's look at that face out there. Yeah. Um, so you're 15, you're in the world of professional wrestling, um, traveling the world as like a kid. What was like that experience? Like, did you have to grow up really fast? Did I ever really grow up? I don't really know. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely grew up fast and just kind of got thrown into it. And I don't know, it was, it was very overwhelming you know, everything was happening so fast, you know, obviously like my first trip to Japan was, I think I was like 19 years old, about to turn 20. My debut match was like in the Tokyo Dome in front of like 50,000 people. So as you can imagine, I, I tell the story often, but it's like, they told us right, right before, you know, not, not to look up because you're going to see the crowd. You might freak yourself out. So walking down the ramp, the first thing I could do was like, you just see this sea of people. And I looked up and I looked all around and I, Definitely was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Why am I here? <laughs> like, whose idea was this? But yeah, no, I got, I got, uh, I definitely got to grow up fast and have a bunch of really cool experiences as a young man. And I think it's okay. What was like your parents' reaction to this of like sending their boy into the world and keeping tabs on you? And at this time, it's not like, what was the cell phone situation then? Were we on cell phones? Yeah, we had like, we had a big phone, you know, kind of like you were just like you were playing snake on your phone. Yes. That was the kind of phone that you had. Yes, yeah. We definitely had yeah. a Nokia playing snake <laughs> on it. Um, yeah. 
but when I was going international, you had to get calling cards. So you'd get the calling card and then like dial the number. Then you had to put a pin in and then you had to hope that somebody picked up on the other line and, uh, you know, who or somebody was home. Did you have a rule of like, you have to check in at this time, you've got to call your family? Like, did you guys have any kind of a system set into place? No, they just said, you know, call. And, and you know, there was email too, right? So like, you know, it was like more emails. So I, so like even that, like you would have to go to- Like an like internet an in, cafe. Exactly, yes. internet cafe. Yes. Pay for like whatever, four or $5 an hour. And then you could, you know, surf the net and send emails. So I, I often sent emails and then I tried to, call like every few days or so. When I think of like me moving from Canada to Los Angeles when I was like 19 and I felt like I was an adult at the time, but now, now actually being an adult, I'm like, oh my God, I was a child. How did my mother let me do that? How irresponsible. What could have happened? Oh my God. I I think, well, I think my, my parents felt very strong. Like they they were so happy for me and they, they could see that I actually, you know, I, I wasn't very good in school or anything. I didn't apply myself very much to school. So I, I think they were happy that, uh, you know, I was going and doing something positive and I was like into it as a career and not just for like a hobby or anything. So I think they were, they were very behind it. Obviously when I started, you know, getting these offers to go different places, they were of course worried, but they also were like, go do it. You know, like, like, this is cool. And, you know, not, no one in our family has ever been to Japan. Go to Japan. That sounds really cool. Did you ever have a moment as like being a kid, being around a ton of adults going, oh, I'm a little in over my head right now? Were you like, because you must have seen some shit that you were like, oh. Right. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Nothing that like, man, I've probably blocked it out over all these years. But yeah, like, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure there was definitely those kind of situations and I don't know. I just I, like, I don't know. I just, the, the goal was so important that to, you know, to wrestle and, you know, and try to do this as a living so that I feel like all that was always like more important than anything else. Anything that was around adults. The only time I feel like I really felt like that was like definitely in the ring. Like you're against somebody like Jushin Liger, who's a legend and you start questioning everything. Like, do I do not belong here at all. I do not belong here. And then you forget everything, you know, your mind just goes blank. Like I couldn't even tell you about the first year in Japan that I wrestled because I feel like I was just always so nervous. It's all just like, sure. You couldn't soak it in proper. Yeah, Yeah. No, not at all. I remember when I was in LA and I had, I couldn't work. I didn't have, I didn't have a work visa. I had nothing. I didn't even have any work experience, but I was like, I'm off to Hollywood. I had no money. I made $50 a night under the table at this like one bar that I was working at. My car would break down on me all the time. But my roommate was friends with Paul Allen, who was like created Microsoft with Bill Gates, owned like the biggest yacht in the world. I'm at this man's house. I don't have like fucking $20 in my bank account. And we were, he had like a tram in his house to go down to his guest house where he had a band that lived in this guest house that he just like woke up to like play music for everybody. (laughs) And that was a moment for me where I go, what the fuck am I doing here? I don't have any money. I don't belong with this circle of people. Like, why am I here? It was like such a weird eye opening moment that made me just feel like a kid that was like, what the fuck am I doing in in this moment? Yeah, Yeah, that was just in over my head. With people that I should not have been like, and he's a lovely man. He was very nice, but I was like, just not where I should have been at the time because I was a kid and I needed to get my shit together. But anyways, 
Your time at New Japan, why was New Japan the place that you have really gravitated towards to like really call home? It's the only place that would employ me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. No. Um, so yeah, I started at like 15. Then I think around like that time I, st- I really started to get into Japanese professional wrestling. You know, I, w- I was a fan of the cruiserweight division in WCW. You know, that was a big effect on me. Obviously, like I'm a smaller guy. So who were your guys? Who, who were you watching that you loved? Ray and Eddie, of course, but like Hoovy, Psychosis. I mean, they were all the, you know, just these crazy, amazing athletes, Jericho as well. I just thought that they were, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. And, and, and obviously like there were, there also became personalities as well. You know, in the beginning it was just about the matches, but then they started to really become personalities, especially like with uh, Jericho and Guerrero. So yeah, I started to really get into them. I was like, oh, this seems feasible. Like I could make a living doing that, like trying to become a cruiserweight. So then I started to like get into ECW and I was like, oh, that's really seems like that's possible. I could totally fit into here, you know? So that was always the dream I was like, I could just make it to ECW. Maybe I could become, you know, get a WCW cruiserweight contract and then I'm made, you know? But then with that discovering, you know, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Gliger, like I said, and, and, um, and some of the other, Japanese wrestlers that would would come over to WCW. And so I started doing a deep dive into that. They found like the J Cup series, which is like so iconic. And uh, and then I was like, oh, I really want to wrestle in Japan because this is where everybody kind of like, if you're good, that's where you go. And then, you know, your career kind of like blossoms from there, hopefully. So that was always the goal was to get to Japan. But then once I got there, I realized how hard it was to actually stay there. So the first year, you know, I went and then I didn't go back for like another like year and a half or something like that, two years, they were basically like, oh, go get more experience. You're not ready for this yet. Is that why it's kind of hard to stay there? Yeah, for sure. For sure. At least for me and my experience, you know. So they sent me to Mexico. I went and worked for CMLL in 2003. And then I got a a really great opportunity there, became like the first ever CMLL Super Lejero champion. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I sure did. And uh, <laughs> and then had like these really like uh, a series of like really cool, iconic matches uh, in Mexico. I, then I started to feel like, okay, maybe I'm ready for like this next level, you know, going back to New Japan. So then I got an opportunity to go back, did very well there. And then I, they said, okay, you're, you are ready. Let's make you Black Tiger. So when they give you that offer to become Black Tiger, what is going through your mind? What an opportunity. I thought they were joking. (laughs) (laughs) I really did. So they told me like, oh, um," you know, because Black Tiger is like, if you don't know, is like this iconic, legendary character. So there's Tiger Mask, which is the good guy. And his arch nemesis is Black Tiger. So Mark Rollerball Rocco, um, you know, iconic, you know, wrestler from the UK. Then Eddie Guerrero, who's my hero, became Black Tiger. Then Silver King. And then I'm the fourth generation. So hell of a feather in your cap. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's very cool. So when they told me, I was like, uh, are you serious? Like, like me, Rocky, me, they're like, yes, no, we want you to be, you know, so, uh, I guess like tiger mask, uh, four, which is the guy who I worked with, who's the fourth generation of his masked wrestler. So he wanted me to become black tiger. So that's kind of a cool compliment. So Obviously, I got to work with him and that was, you know, really great experience. That's nuts. Yeah, very, very cool. It's cool, like the lineage and everything that goes into it in the history to just like give that like pat on the back and like what an honorary thing to be able to do and be a part of. Um, So you're in New Japan, crushing it, 
you know, wrestling, doing X, Y, and Z. When did it start to filter in for you to sort of become like office for New Japan and start recruiting and start like, you know, getting talent ready? Kind of around this time, you know, we had uh, an, an LA dojo. It was back in Santa Monica. It's like 2000, between 2002 and 2005 ish. Iconic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Danielson was there. Samoa Joe, myself, Carl Anderson, Alex Kozlov, Prince Devitt, AKA Finn Balor. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of great talent came from there. I think during then, like I just kind of ended up in a kind of a leadership ish role kind of there. I think that's just you in general. Have you always been like that? You're like that leader guy. You give off that vibe. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it, but uh, I guess somehow I always find myself in these predicaments where like, you tell these people what to do, kind of. (laughs) And I'm just like, guys, don't get mad at me. But like, here's the situation. But but yeah, so I, I just kind of started getting like kind of a leadership role and kind of communicating between the, you know, New Japan um, heads at the LA Dojo and then with the wrestlers and kind of being the intermediary between them. And uh, somehow, much later, that, that, that experience was kind of the stepping stone, I think, to 10 years later, 15 years later, whatever it was, 12 years later, that um, Tiger Tori was stepping down in his position, who was this guy who scouted talent, who, you know, went agent in deals and stuff between wrestlers in New Japan and found, you know, every person who's, who's gone through the New Japan doors, probably, you know, from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, it was, you know, Tiger Tori. So uh, he kind of like mentored me and suggested that, you know, when he was ready to step down that I should take his place. So that's kind of how it happened. If I basically owe my whole career to him. How was it to balance between being in-ring talent to also having that like managerial position? It's kind of a hard pill to swallow in the beginning, I found, because I, I, I was obviously still young in my 30s and still, you know, felt like there was still a lot I wanted to accomplish and, and do. But then you're kind of like, I can't do both. You can't really do both. It's Well, you can, but it's, it's, it's very difficult. You really got to take the ego out of it, you know? So I kind of had to learn that, I think, probably the first year and, and just be like, okay, just focus on everybody else. And then in time, when the company needs you or there's an opportunity, you know, say, raise your hand and say, hey, I'd do it, you know, if you guys want me to. What was that for you? Probably like 2019, I did, I did the Super Junior and I hadn't been in it for a few years. And it was kind of the focus was, um, you know, I kind of became a manager for like about a year and a half or like. I was a wrestling manager. So like I was in like the six mans, I'd just, you know, get beaten, take the pins. But then the focus was on uh, Rapungi 3K, which is show and yo. And like, I came up with the ideas of how to package them and everything like that. So I really took a step back. I even like got myself terrible gear to make them look better. <laughs> and that's how I like, I was thinking about this. So yeah, not, not the best looks for me during that time. But then, um, yeah, 2019, I was like, okay. I would love to try to do another super junior and like give it a go while, you know, while I still can, you know, because the older I get, obviously. And then plus, like, as the younger generation comes up, you know, we obviously got to give them the opportunities more than I did. I've already done them, right? I think I had my best performance, you know, probably ever in a super junior and had like a, like a match of the year candidate with, um, with El Fantasmo and the Canadian King, El Fantasmo. You're familiar. So uh, I I thought I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, okay, 2019 was definitely my best year in in a super junior. So 
maybe that's just it. Maybe I'm just done with doing those anymore. Maybe that's it. And just kind of let the next generation, because like, I don't think I'm going to do any better than I did in 2019. So let's just go out on top. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, there's part of me that's like, hell no, go out and keep doing it and keep going. But I know when you feel like you've really like put the cherry on top and you feel really proud of that performance, it's kind of just want to like, okay, step away. Great, great, great. Um, Okay, so the relationship with New Japan and AEW, I know that that was a whole thing kind of going back and forth, figuring out what this whole forbidden door is. Obviously, you would have been uh, a pretty heavy hand in what those conversations were. Uh, were like, what was that experience? And also just bringing you into to now work with uh, best friends. The relationship between New Japan and AEW was kind of started off a little rocky, you know, uh, obviously like uh, the elite being a part of New Japan and then obviously this new company starting and like what that was going to look like was kind of, you know, strange because there obviously were like, you know, especially Kenny was a contracted wrestler and here he was saying like he was leaving to start a new company. So it was like it didn't start off the best. And and definitely the president at the time was kind of opposed of working with uh, AEW in the beginning. So definitely like people like Jericho, Moxley and Omega were the, were kind of the, the ones to really get this whole kind of forbidden door idea started and, and getting the companies to work together. And then finally, I think with the pandemic, then, you know, all everything was closed off. There was only you know, certain wrestlers that could go back and forth between Japan and America, you know, which basically made the opportunity for uh, the Kenta and Moxley angle to happen on the New Japan side, which also Moxley versus Omega that was happening in AEW. And then Omega reached out and was like, I got this crazy idea to bring Kenta to AEW. What do you think? Do you think New Japan will go for it? And I said, well, I think now is a great time to try it. It was a big moment. It was cool as all hell. It was a really cool moment. Really awesome. And um, worked out. I feel like it worked out when when Kenta showed up on Dynamite. Nobody was expecting that. And, you know, this was still taping in Jacksonville, you know, in front of uh, just a few hundred fans or whatever it was. And uh, but it was just a really, really amazing moment. And that was kind of like what definitely started to get things uh, going. I met with Tony and Tony was really, really cool. And, he, you know, how excited he was about working with New Japan, how much he wanted to work with New Japan, how much of a fan he was of New Japan before AEW. So it just kind of worked itself out. And then there was starting to gain a little trust on both sides, I think. Then we finally came up with the idea. Of, I think I texted with Tony, like, what if we just did like a super show of some sort? Their matches could be mixed. They could be, you know, New Japan matches, AEW matches, whatever it, 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 whatever it is. Let's just put the idea out there. I would love to see if we can make something work. And then Tony was immediately like, I have like eight matches I'm ready to do. Like he had so many <laughs> ideas right off the bat. I was like, oh, this is great. This is great. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And then I'm thinking like, I hope New Japan says yes. So then I went, <laughs> I went back to New Japan. I told them about it. And um, all of a sudden it became a reality. Like, like things started happening behind the scenes where, you know, we're talking about, well, how would it work? You know, who handles the production? Da, 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 da. So going back and forth. So I just was going back and forth between, you know, Chris Harrington and the New Japan office between Tony in the New Japan office and just going back and forth. And then, uh, you know, we were able to put this, this show together. And it was a crazy experience because New Japan is such a live event company. AEW is obviously like a television company. So two very different worlds. Uh, so like, you know, there we had some, you know, some scheduling conflicts. And then obviously like COVID, a lot, you know, people COVID, then we had injuries on top of that. So like definitely the original plan changed a bunch. 
but it was cool that both companies were were willing to make it work and 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 figure out how to how to make this thing work and it was a huge huge success i mean one of the biggest pay-per-views uh, of the year so yeah it was awesome um okay so for you to join best friends there's obviously some some deep history there with, with yes. a few of those fellows right. um but for you to be on you know back into the the wrestling scene of things with AEW yeah, that was kind of the unexpected part. You know, uh, I think that after like the first time I showed up, uh, like with Kenta, when he showed up on Dynamite, Tony was like, I love Rapungi Vice. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, sometimes I play it after the shows, you know? And then, so I conf- I had to confirm with Trent, like, does, does Tony really like Rapungi Vice? Does he really play it after the shows? He's like, yeah, dude, he knows all the words. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cool. So then he was like- uh, That's so funny. It, yeah, it was really cool. So um, then he's like, so he mentioned, he's like, I would love for you to come back to AEW sometime. And I, you know, Trent was, was hurt at the time, but I, I would love for eventually to, we can do like a Rapungi Vice reunion on, in AEW. And that was kind of the, the stepping stones of, of working with best friends. And then obviously, you know, working with OC, working with Chuck. Yeah, just like really, really cool and just kind of got thrown into it. So then, you know, like now I'm the guy who can obviously become like a New Japan representative in AEW all the time, but also be a part of like, an existing stable angle at any point, whenever they need an extra person, they can just throw me in there and plug me in. bit of a moment in the making because we were supposed to podcast a while ago but now what a better time than right now to have you here on the sessions because life is life and out here we're out here doing it yeah life's life and pretty hard isn't it huh oh my god <laughs> okay so obviously you know you've just signed to aew you are brand new being back on the road um you are the senior vice president co-executive producer of all elite wrestling what a feather in the cap we're going to get into all of the AEW um, details, but for people that um, maybe are less familiar with who you are, they've heard the name Mike Mansuri. Who is he? What does he do? Why is getting Mike Mansuri such an epic signing for AEW? And that's what this podcast is going to be about, everybody, is who Mike Mansuri is. Um, not only is he one of my nearest and dearest pals, um, but we met, of course, on the road with WWE for the last you know, almost 10 years. Jeez, for me. We, we go back even further than that. I still remember meeting you for the very first time while you were doing your on-cameras for the international programming at WWE. <laughs> and I, remember I was going in to shoot an episode of WWE in Espanol with my guys, Carlos Cabrera and Marcelo Rodriguez. And in the studio, just wrapping up her sash with the crew over there is just this uh, ingenue from Toronto, right? <laughs> that, long, that long blonde hair, young Renee Paquette. <laughs> And little uh, did I know that one of my most favorite, most cherished personal and professional relationships would have kicked off on that day and all the stuff that we would have done individually oh my God. together, right? Like, holy shit. 
It is really crazy. I mean, uh, for me, and I, you know, same for you is like for uh, the big chunk of our professional careers were spent together. We've done so many shows together, whether it's doing kickoff panels for WWE, doing WrestleManias. You are like the brains behind doing Talking Smack. We're going to get into all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, man, our our um, careers have just been like really interwoven together. So I obviously could not be more thrilled that you are at AEW now. OK, let's take things back to the beginning, because that's where I like to start. I like to in chronological order. Um, but you worked at MTV for a chunk of time. That was your first foray into the television business was MTV, correct? I started uh, at Hofstra University and within like the first couple of months of being there, I just knew that college wasn't for me. You know what I mean? I graduated high school at 16 years old. My first week of college, I was 16 years old. So I was- <laughs> Wait, I didn't know that. What? You graduated high school at 16? Yeah, yeah, man. I had one point, at one point in life, I was actually pretty smart. Well, uh, listen, I know how brilliant you are, uh, but I didn't know that you were like a child prodigy. No, 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 no. I, I, I was. And then to stop getting my ass kicked by like all the older kids in class after I got in skip degree, I kind of tried to like dumb myself down a little bit, which is not a smart thing to do. But, you know, when you're all of two feet tall and surrounded by just bigger kids that have gone through puberty way ahead of you. You do what you can to survive, right? Uh, but yeah, look, you know, I, I, I knew right off the bat that college wasn't necessarily for me. You know, I wanted to kind of take some time off and just try to figure things out. So I left school and wound up never going back, much to the chagrin of my mother. Thank God that she uh, had a lot of patience for me. How old were you then when you left school? Uh, I was 18 when I left school. So I did one full year and just I just knew it wasn't for me. Um, you know, kind of like told around, did a bunch of different stuff, you know, got involved with a little improv comedy, um, cause I'd had these like delusions of grandeur making it as like, you know, an, an, an on-air personality or even, you know, some sort of actor, et cetera. Um, I started bartending right in my early twenties and was having a blast. I didn't really think about much about anything. And I befriended a woman and this is how I got into MTV. I remember vividly the day she came in, I carted her at the bar to take her drink. And she had a very, very distinct last name, Leguizamo. And at the time, right, like here I am, a guy trying to get to comedy, uh, you know, coming from a Hispanic family. I'm looking at her ID and she goes, what's the problem? And I was like, you just have a very distinct last name. And she's like, oh, you mean like my brothers, John Leguizamo, who's one of my idols. And I'm, you know, sitting I'm like, get the fuck out of here. And we strike up this fast friendship, right? And I remember one night, Months down the line, she and uh, one of her best friends growing up, who's now like a, a high powered agent in the sports uh, broadcasting world, were sitting there and she, Marie, looks at me and she goes, What do you want to do when you get older? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it was like 21, 22 at the time. And I was like, I don't know. I'm making pretty good money cash bartending like three to four nights a week. Like my life's pretty good. My hours are pretty wacky, but they fit into what I want to do. She says, uh, Why don't you come give TV a try? I think you'd like it. You've got a great personality. You seem to be hardworking. And I think you'd be a great fit. So like, what was your first job? What did they bring you in to do? So I was a production assistant at MTV3, the Spanish MTV, where I wound up meeting a very good friend of mine who you know very well, Mr. Mike Verga, who spent some time with WWE. Um, but he, so Mike and I basically spent all day running errands. It's not like we were like logging tapes or anything that like was happening within. We spent most of our time running all over Manhattan, getting Jamba Juice and Starbucks ordered. Um, there was this awesome, giant, like multi-level warehouse in Chelsea that we used to have to go to a lot to get props for, you know, TRL and the Spanish version of TRL. Basically just odds and ends that took us all over Manhattan. So while I was doing that, I was still kind of bartending. 
but I'd fallen in love. You know what I mean? Especially like those, that first opportunity that I got to work on a live broadcast was an episode of the Spanish TRL. I remember going into the control room just in case Marie needed me for anything to basically be like a runner, just seeing like the, the energy, that frenetic energy and the pacing. I fell in love. The, the hearts were in my eyes. Like I, I, I had found my calling and I knew that this was going to be, this was going to be my life's work and it was going to be live TV. You spent a good bit of a good chunk of time at MTV, correct? How long were you there for? Yeah, I want to say over a year, maybe a year and a half. Somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so I was still bartending. And I remember this was around Thanksgiving time, right? And like when you're, you know, fresh out of college and stuff, everyone comes back home for the holidays. And, you know, they'll everyone gathers at their local watering hole or whatever. I'd run into a girl that I'd known since we were in junior high school. And, you know, doing the usual catch up, what have you been up to, that, 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 where it's like taking you, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd mentioned to her that I was working at MTV. And she said like, hey, you know, when we were kids, I remember you loved wrestling. My boyfriend works at WWE. He works in their home video department. And apparently they're always looking for people. Do you want me to connect you guys? Maybe you pass them off your resume. You never, you never know what happens, but they're always looking for, for new people to get involved. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I didn't really think anything about it. Didn't think anything would come up the opportunity. Sent a, an email to, over to her boyfriend, a phenomenal dude who's still with WWE, no longer her boyfriend, but they've all found happiness in life. Uh, <laughs> his name's Pete McKinney and connected with Pete, sent him over my stuff. And I want to say sometime after the holidays. So once we crossed off into the new year, the interview process began with WWE. Okay. So what was your interview process like? Mine was a shit show. I had to go in and do literally every version of potentially being an on-air personality with WWE. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, hosting like a, a pre-show or an after show, doing commentary for the first time, um, doing interviews, all that stuff. What was your interview process like? My interview process was far tame, far more tame. Thank God. It started off with just a recruiter from HR. And I think once I kind of passed that preliminary test, they brought me in to meet with a, a few of the senior folks on the team. One person, the one person who I met with that was probably the most challenging part of the interview process was who would eventually go on to be my manager. And you know her well is Kasama. <laughs> so I go in to meet with Kasama. I, you know, I'm 20, I want to say it was about 23 or 24 at the time. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is like a pretty big deal. And they told me that she ran the road crew just to double back real quick. So initially they had submitted my resume in to be a writer's assistant. When I spoke with the recruiter, he said, hey, so the writer assistant, there's a pretty bulky amount of uh, applicants for that role. If you're interested, I have a position open for production assistant on our travel team, our travel production team. He's like, would you ever be interested in that? And at that ding, point, ding, I'd, only, yeah, I'd only ever done, you know, two flights in my entire life going to Chicago from New York and then back. So it was all about it. Met Kasama, who at the time was running the road crew, right, as we, uh, were, we, were, uh, we were known. And it was the most nerve wracking interview I had ever had in my entire I would life. like to see you nervous. I've never seen you nervous a day in my life. It's hysterical. Well, Kasama brought it out of me because she her, her interview style was hysterical because if you know her, she's got she's got this great personality. But when she wants to be, she can be intense. I don't know if she was just trying to test my mettle to see if I could hang because it is a very demanding job, right? To be on the road 52 weeks a year, working on live TV, pressure, 
like you've never seen and in front of the biggest people possible, right? Like who takes an entry level job where they're working with the CEO, you know, the head of TV, et cetera. So I'm literally, it felt like those old style, like police interrogations. where the light <laughs> Yeah, light shining in your face. I have a, a tendency, if I get nervous, I speak very fast. I think she caught it, like she caught on to it. And I remember Kasama just kind of sitting there looking at me and she goes, you seem nervous. Why are you nervous? You have no reason to be nervous for it. And just continuing to grill me and grill me. And I was like, oh shit, this is just going so terribly backwards. No, I thought I blew it. <laughs> I absolutely thought I blew it. Panic, and panic. I remember driving back to Long Island uh, where I was living at the time from Stanford and just sitting there going like, man, it was going really, really well until I got to that last interview. I was like, I hope I didn't fuck it up talking to the boss. Lo and behold, I think it was like a week or so later, they gave me a call, offered me the job and started off an 11 plus year journey that I am forever grateful for. For you to rise the ranks within WWE to get to the position that you were in, um, how long did it take you to really start to get some traction behind you to, uh, to start getting promoted and whatnot? I started off as a PA, right? And, you know, I fell head over heels for the job. The job was very, very demanding. Um, but like, I'll speak honestly, right? Like there were times where I was my own worst enemy through my ascension. How so? So you're 24, 25 years old. You're living this rock star life in and out of hotels, on tour buses, et cetera. Um, you kind of buy into the hype, right? Like it's pretty hard not to. And when you're successful at it and you're starting to get noticed by the right people, you develop a bit of a chip on your shoulder. You know, there was a while where, you know, it could be subjective, but I know that I was on the wrong side of it. You know, people can mistake confidence for cockiness. And I think a lot of the times that got in my way to the point where like, you know, even if there were underperforming members on our team and stuff, like, you know, we all kind of policed ourselves, but I always took it upon myself to kind of be like the, the standard bearer. And it was my, you know, much, much to my detriment, right? Like I, I just, you know, just a lot of like dumb young kid moves where the intentions were right. It's just the manner of execution wasn't. So that actually delayed my development a little bit at the beginning of my career, you know, because even through attitude problems, if you want to call them that, right? Like the work, the, the drive was always there. It's a really delicate balance too. And it's like, you're right, because you start to get momentum behind yourself. You are already confident. And then it starts to air to like, maybe just going beyond that. that You're like, fuck, how do I reel that back in to find that perfect harmony of having the confidence with the ability to now be able to go out and execute? It's hard to do. Yeah. And it comes with maturity, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, and it's a maturity you have to find within yourself in order to do, because again, it's look, it is so unbelievably easy to get lost into that lifestyle because. Oh my it's God, so, it's such yeah, a bubble. Yeah. You know what I mean? And look, I grew up from very, like, I, I can't, I come from very humble beginnings, right? Like we weren't, weren't like poor, but we, you know, we weren't like well to do. Um, so to be in a situation now where you're flying every week, so you start achieving status and you're getting first class upgrades and you're staying in these amazing hotels and you're rubbing elbows with all these people, right? If you don't watch yourself, you know what I mean? Like, and that's the funny part for me, right? You're so worried about policing the team and making sure everyone's operating within the parameters, but you're not policing yourself. It takes a lot of self-awareness and maturity that I didn't have at the time to do something like that. But when it finally clicked and I sort of shifted gears, um, you know, and then having this drive to where I wanted to be, because I knew where I wanted to be the moment, you know, I stepped foot in my first control room, the moment that I stepped foot into the WWE production truck for the first time, right? Like I wanted to be the man. 
And I knew that in order to get there, I was going to have to bust my ass and work harder than I'd ever done or imagined in my entire life. So that, of course, leads me to my next question. <laughs> to be that man and working under Kevin Dunn uh, for such a long time, what was your relationship like with him? What's it like being in that production truck, kind of getting that experience and seeing the way that those shows are run? Um, God, there's a million questions I could ask you about that. But I guess first and foremost, just your relationship uh, with Kevin and working under him for such a long time. Kevin was one of those people right at the top of WWE that had taken notice of me at a very young age. You know, Kasama would tell me and like other elder statesmen on the road, right? Like crew guys that had been out on the road 15, 20 years. You, you know what that WWE family is like. Hey, kid, he doesn't pay attention to PAs that much. So you're doing something right. And that relationship only just grew. And, you know, he was pretty aware of what I wanted to do, the drive that I had, and was always, always making sure that I could walk in a certain instance before I ran. You know what I mean? Like there oh, was Kevin a- will check you. That's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I've been checked by him many a time. We, we all have. Right. But that's sort of that, you know, that humility that needs to kind of be instilled in you, whether, you know, however it may come. Uh, Kevin and I had a great relationship, um, you know, and even extended beyond work to a personal relationship. Um, and it, like, I wouldn't call it like a traditional mentor mentee sort of deal. You know what I mean? Because he's a busy dude. He's got a lot going on. So a lot of what he did, you had to learn by his example. I picked up what I knew I could do. Um, and then I figured out what I can tweak and sort of do in my own way. Um, but I mean, make no mistake about it. He is a massive part of why I'm in the position that I'm in right now, because, you know, like I, I joke about it a lot, but in terms of TV production and even the psychology of the business, which is so important to have in this position, I went to the Harvard I studied under Kevin, Vince McMahon, you know, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Pat Patterson, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, like a who's who of people. Can't forget Michael Cole. Kill me. Uh, <laughs> who, always, I, I always give Michael Cole his flowers. We love you, Cole. He's the absolute best, man. But, you know, to have been fortunate enough at that point in my career to have such unbelievably talented, just legends in the game, both in front and behind the camera to help in developing me and bringing my career and me and my life to where, you know, it, it got me to at that point. Like, oof. what do you think was your first big break within WWE for them to really take notice and give you um, a little more room to move? My first real big break, and this is going to sound so strange, but I think something that kind of showed, not kind of, something that I do believe showed them that I could handle the highest of all high pressure situations was the night Jerry Lawler had his heart attack in Montreal. Yes, absolutely. That was something I wanted to talk to you about because obviously that was, you know, such an insane moment, but you were right there, right at ringside with him. Thank God everything worked out and Jerry's doing great. Uh, But what was that night like for you? So it was wild. We were, uh, Jerry had worked a match earlier in the night. I believe he was teaming with Randy and I think they wrestled Dolph and CM Punk. Jerry comes back from the match. He gets back to ringside. I towel him off to get all the sweat off of him. And I get him his trademark Diet Coke while he's working the table. Later in the night, the primetime players, Darren Young and Titus O'Neil, are working with Kane and Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson. (laughs) Yeah. At a certain point in the match. So at commentaries, Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler, I'm sat right next to Michael Cole. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sitting next to Jerry. Michael Cole is on the other side. Cole would always like sign to me or like we would make jokes while we were working. And at one point during the match, 
Jerry's got his head, his head is rested on his fist like so. And you start hearing snoring noises. So Cole leans back and he's looking at me and he starts laughing because he thought that Jerry was kind of taking on, you know, Michael during the first iteration of NXT, where it was like the, the, the competition based sort of deal used to do that on air. He would like, this is boring and like go to sleep, etc. So we're laughing because we think Jerry's joking. Michael sits back up and Jerry's continuing to do it, but it sounds like less of a snore. Well, actually a snore is like you're struggling to breathe, right? So it's just kind of, and I'm hearing this in my headset because I have the commentators in my headset at ringside so that they can talk to me during commercial breaks in case they needed anything. And Jerry still got the head on his hand. And then all of a sudden his arm just shot out and his head just slams on the commentary table. We were like all pretty startled. Michael Cole, uh, he's leaning back and he's yelling for Doc Mike Sampson, who's the AEW ringside physician. Now Doc's sitting next to me. I immediately get on headset and start alerting the truck to kill Jerry's mic that there's something wrong with him. Doc comes over. He's given Jerry like a sternum massage to sort of help him. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Doc Sampson's a big guy. I'm a be 200 plus pounder myself. And we've got Jerry in our hands and he just falls thud right to the floor right away. You know, we let everyone know what's going on. At that point, we didn't know it was a heart attack. No one really knew it was up. We pick Jerry up. We walk him alongside the uh, hard camera side, which is where like our whole tech row is lighting, uh, you know, pyro, et cetera. The way that the building was laid out in Montreal, it was not the easiest for the EMTs to get to where we were. So we're carrying Jerry. We're bringing him back. Like I, I remember like TMZ or something had posted a photo and it shows us as we're carrying Jerry alongside the tech area. And I've got Jerry's arms and his head is right here. And if you've never seen anyone get chest compressions before in your life, it is the scariest thing in the world. And you've got Doc Sampson, who's all of 6'1", probably about a solid 240, literally on the gurney mounted on Jerry and giving him chest compressions. And man, it was, it was wild. I remember Randy Orton at one point running back to see the scene. And when Randy saw them working on Jerry, I just remember Randy putting his hands into his face and going against the wall. And he just kind of slumped down because he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He literally maybe a half hour removed from working a match with that guy. But during that whole time, I'm just in communication with the truck, letting them know what's going on. It was a, a pretty tense scene. Um, because they were working on him backstage for about a good 15 minutes before they got him in the ambulance and took him to the hospital where, thank God, he came to and didn't remember a thing. Obviously, everyone can see the pressure that you're under during a situation like that. That kind of lets everyone know this guy can, you know, let's give him a little bit of love. Let's put him up in uh, some positions to succeed, give him a little more place to work. Um, what about working NXT and working with Triple H? Because that's a big part of your career as well, um, especially that early iteration of what NXT was, what it was going to go on to become in working so closely with Hunter. To this day, probably the most magical time in my career. And like as cheesy as it sounds to use a word. No, but wasn't it a special time? God. You were there. You were a part of it. You know, like it was, it was funny, right? Like we were, while still under the WWE umbrella, we were kind of all together creating the anti WWE product. It was a, it was a combination of just good old fashioned sports entertainment from like the late eighties where we're creating all these characters, but also leaning into what wrestling had become in like, you know, the early 2010s, right. You know, you, you know, you're, you're hearing all the buzz 
that ring of honor pwg like all these promotions have right and like in essence a lot of like the very best of the best from the indie scene found themselves at nxt with a nice mix of folks who had converted over from being you know from guys like baron corbin who were in the nfl etc so there was this nice collection of talent down there and there was a collection of talent behind the scenes that were all hungry and looking to establish themselves and i don't know that anything in my career is going to replicate what those first few years of NXT were like, because it really was just an unbelievably special moment. And there's just, it felt like a movement, you know what I mean? Does what you're doing now, and I know you've been there, you've been, uh, you know, at AEW for a second, you've not even really started like working, working yet, but is that you know, as a little bit of part of that, that glimmer of like, man, look at what we can create and do here with all of this talent, all of this like future, how good everything can look for AEW. That was such a big part of the allure of AEW is it's, you know, what, three, four years old at this point. The best part about it is, is that everyone there knows that this is still a you know, it's, it's still being built. It's still, I don't want to call it a work in progress. Right. But like, it's this, it's this amazing thing. It's like, it's like finding like this amazing, like, like gem hidden somewhere. And that, you know, that it's not even like polished and presented to its full potential. You know what I mean? That that's what was so enticing about the opportunity at AEW is what was so enticing when I went over to Singapore to work for one championship is the opportunity to, to build something and to, and to, and to play a part in establishing a brand, you know what I mean? And that's what we did back in, you know, 2012, 2013, uh, with that, with that iteration of NXT. Okay. Before we fully dive into all things AEW, and I do want to touch on some one championship as well, but your time in, in WWE, you got to do all of these amazing things, um, from NXT to, you know, all of these huge shows with WWE, WrestleMania, Summer Slams, big specials, you know, getting the network up off of its feet, all of those great things. Um, I would be remiss to not ask you about us putting together Talking Smack. Why did Talking Smack work? And why is it so hard to replicate something like what we had? So it's, it's funny because when the network launched, there was a need for content, right? As there is when any network launches or when any network is just in existence, you need content. And what could we do outside of the in-ring stuff that was going to appeal to the fans? And a lot of that stuff sometimes just fell over to me. Hey, we want to do this, or we want to start doing these kickoff shows before the pay-per-view to sell, or we're going to start doing these post shows and pre-shows for Raw and SmackDown. So we were making it up as, it, as we went. And to answer your question about what made it so special, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, I think what made it so special is that we made it up. Anything that was on Talking Smack and uh, Raw Talk, but specifically Talking Smack, because I think what made Talking Smack so special, that show wouldn't have been what it was if it weren't for you and Brian. Again, right, it's just kind of like the devil's in the details there, right? Like you got, you know, Brian is in the midst of this tumultuous part of his life where wrestling was taken from him and he's still involved in the business somehow, but it's not where he wants to be, but he's making the best of it. But also, right, to, <laughs> like, like we know Brian, Brian was also kind of taking the piss out of things while he was <laughs> talking smack. And not in a way that he wasn't trying, you know, not, not that he wasn't trying to like bury anybody or not get anybody over, right? But like he was having fun and you were finally in a position to where 
you could work as a host and a presenter without any sort of limitations, right? Like you got to be Renee. You got to have an opinion. You got to, you know, do your part in storytelling. And for me, it was. Yeah, I mean, if I can just put it back on you a little bit here, too, because as much as, yes, you can see Brian and I hosting the show and you could see our chemistry and it was giving new talent a really great place to come and figure out their characters, figure out promos, figure, you know, working all that stuff out. But you, this was also an opportunity for you to get to work without all of those parameters that we were used to as well. This was a big creation of yours. And I think what what helped me in that position was that creatively, I knew where we were. You know what I mean? And I think regardless of whether we had parameters or no parameters, it had been instilled in me to do what was always best for WWE, to do what was best for the business. And for me as a producer, one of the main functions that I hold paramount in all my work is to make sure that my talent looks the absolute best that it possibly can look. And I don't mean that just from aesthetics. I mean that from presentation to, you know, what they're saying and how they're going, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a multifaceted approach and we got to do some pretty cool things and we made, we created moments, right? Oh God. Yeah. It's funny. You, you always hear people talk about the, Ms. and Brian's interaction, the one episode where Brian got hot and walked off. What people forget was the setup that we had done. I think it was a week or two prior. I think Mike was left off the show. Intercontinental title, right? He was a champion at the time. Yeah, he was left off the show and he is cutting this impassioned promo to the camera. And I remember going to you, Renee, take me off the air. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And yep. I, I didn't even tell Miz that we were going to do this. I just said, Renee, take me off the air. If Mike is talking about how he's underutilized, abused by the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, let's amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't even wrap him up. You literally just did your sign off to the camera and we faded out. And he's still on his, on his harangue about being misused and wanting to bring glory back to Intercontinental Championship and being disrespected, et cetera. And it was just that next step that was needed to get him to come back and to have that epic confrontation with Brian. God, I forgot about that. That's such a brilliant, like that really was the key to unlocking the reason for him to completely come and unleash the next week or this two weeks away. You, you could argue that a lot of Mike's frustrations at the time were legitimately coming out on the air and he had every right to be, right? And to be able to give him that outlet and then look at what we did, right? You know, we had started creating moments and enhancing characters on the show without any adult supervision. Then the adult supervision kicked in real quick. (laughs) Then the the adults came in and they said, uh, hey, you guys are doing something here. We're uh, going to start putting a couple of writers on this. And slowly but surely. And and, it's look, it's Uh, God rest its sweet soul. Yeah, not, not, you know, not (laughs) taking anything away from the writers. They're an unbelievably talented group of folks. They bust their ass off, but there was just something so organic. We weren't overthinking it. Yeah, we weren't trying to overthink it too much. And if you see a moment, amplify it. Well, that's where those parameters started to come in, right? You know what I mean? Like, you know, even when we would do our kickoff shows, I never liked to tell you guys what to say. I would, Mm -hmm. you know, make sure that you guys were setting each other up well. What are the points that we should hit, et cetera? But then at a certain point with those kickoff shows, they started to get writers on and they would come on headset and be like, hey, uh, Mike, just so you know, Renee has a line to hit here. You know, I know I'm not the easiest person to work with, but, you know, I've had no problem a time or two telling a writer to fuck off when they were trying to get involved (laughs) in what we were doing. Fuckity, fuck, fuck off. 
Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking having this interview, having a hangout, it's all up on there. Um, and that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, we like filtering through them all, reading about them. Maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions. <laughs>